0: Welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your host, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self.
1: You know, one, one thing that we, we enjoy, we, we we enjoy is the autobiography of Malcolm X. I think you might enjoy it more than I do because you've read it every, every summer since you were 16 years old. And the thing that stands out to me is that you have the capacity. I I think that generally any informed African American can, can find flaws, if you will, can find but he's such. He's in the he's in the pantheon of people you don't criticize. Sometimes you know, he's it's, it's, it's like you know. I don't want to I don't want to bring Brother Malcolm down, you know, because somebody <laughs> else might see me pulling him down off the shelf. But you were able to graciously, um, you know, identify his lack of awareness of indigeneity. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I
2: mean, uh, I love Malcolm X. With all the flaws, it is, he was the most important um, sort of historical figure for me as a young Afro-Indigenous male when I was having a hard time um, in high school. And so he, no one can talk bad about Malcolm X around me at all. <laughs> uh, with, with all the contradictions and, and sort of critiques that I L- think Let me interrupt real quick
1: and ask, where were you going to high school?
2: I went to Everett High uh, School. In? Lansing, Michigan. Okay. Okay, go ahead. So, we're, we're, we're Magic Johnson went to high school.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and also, Malcolm X, of course, lived in Lansing for a while. So, yeah, yeah. it meant a lot to me in a, a variety of capacities. And even now, I listen to Malcolm's speech weekly. If I'm writing and I'm a little stuck, I'll put a few different Malcolm X documentaries on in the background. So... And I'm just putting all these qualifiers out to say this is how much I love Malcolm X. Thank you. Um, But in his own sense of nationalism and constructing, because John Henry Clark, I think, fantastically put it this way. Although he's prefacing thing when he is a member of the Nation of Islam, as the honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, thus and so. These are really Malcolm's drawn out thoughts based on what he had learned initially right i mean and this is you can trace this out i think pretty easily you're like well he's saying i don't think uh elijah muhammad said that at all this is Malcolm's extraction <laughs> of this and deep analysis and thought and of course he's reading widely from elder mitchell's uh bookstore and so forth but his conception of black nationalism even as he beat even after he left the nation and is becoming more international And developing understandings of colonialism he like many black figures during the time are constructing a black future or the idea of a black future based on indigenous erasure james baldwin does the same thing and is a very important debate with the conservative william buckley and in developing that when he's talking about the development of manhattan or even talking about the genocide as a past-sense thing instead of an ongoing process of colonialism that's happening to indigenous peoples, it's that erasure, which is a foundational part of also uh, the United States' identity, right? So it feeds into colonialism, which is about taking land, but also creating narratives and discourses that almost eliminate the possibilities of indigenous peoples existing in the present and certainly not in the future. Right. And so yeah, Malcolm and others fell into that. The one exception to this during the time period, of course, was Stokely Carmichael, who changed his name to Kwame Chure. He was adamant from 1969 up until uh, his passing in 1998 that what became the US was indigenous land. And he had c- developed critiques of settler colonialism in Zimbabwe, of course, South Africa. Uh, in Palestine as well, he had developed all these critiques in a very short period of time, which is is just incredible. But that's just the sort of gifted thinker and traveler that he was and thinking about that. And he developed relationships with indigenous peoples all the way up to his death. So for example, a speech he gave in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota in 1975, he explicitly says that this is indigenous land This is not Black people's land, and we need to be in good relationship with Native peoples, which in my analysis is is remarkable. And one of the few, if not only, uh, I'm sure there's an exception somewhere, people that are very well-known activists who explicitly stated that point. And I think it's a powerful example of where even Black uh, activists and radicals should go in understanding this
3: we started off talking about the doctrine of discovery and you know, the title of our, this podcast is God is not an asshole. Right. And, um, in my own, in my own journey on, in my own little lane over here, I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which European indigenous populations were decimated by Christian colonialism, right. By the ways and the ways that our practices, Mm. languages, religions, Music, I, yes. my Irish music is still here, but you know, so, have been decimated and we've lost it, right? I, lost our, our own homes in a way, and then came here and were so much easy, It was so much easier for us to assimilate into the hierarchy of whiteness. And, and now we are white, right? And but, but I have to, I, ha- I want us to get back to this idea of Christian. Colonial, the church's responsibility in colonizing the world, the, the doctrines and the belief system that that insists on um, s- spreading this word, and the way the way that it was used by the the pope, the, you know, during who the the people those people bulls that were were initiated were were basically legal loopholes because the idea was you can't go out and colonize a Christian nation but you so you're, you're supposed to go out and, you know, uh, convert all these people, but there was no real, real desire to convert them because then they couldn't conquer them. They couldn't plunder their land and rape and pillage and do all of the things. Right. So I want us to get back to that somehow about, about, we talked a little bit about metaphysics. We talked a little bit about the doctrine of discovery. We talked about um, the ways that in which indigenous people have been decimated, but I want us to get back to this idea of like, the church's responsibility in all of that? And what are we going to do about that? Where is the imagination for redemption for this, this institution that has done so much harm?
2: I don't know if there is redemption. Uh, I don't either. Uh, <laughs> and, and I I think in pessimism, sometimes I call it pessimistic, but I, it's really idealistic in the sense of constantly critiquing and thinking about the limitations of of possibility. I think in there you find a lot of freedom to imagine, but I, Oh, there's so many. So historically, of course, the church, but I want to talk specifically to the black church and some of the, some of the roles. For instance, when I was growing up, going to church six days a week, five, six days a week, you're just infused with this propaganda around, for example, Palestine and Israel um, mm-hmm. as a very sort of modern notion of, of colonization.
3: That happens They're in not, white evangelical fundamentalist churches as well.
2: <laughs> right, right, right.
3: Yeah, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Like,
2: and, you know, the Christian supremacy of we need to redeem Israel, uh, a complete ignoring mm-hmm. of this is a religious conflict. Sure, there's some components of that, but it's just, you know, basic colonization. And the role in educating or miseducating people to believe this is sort of God's divine will. And it just reverberates into the present. That was the foundation. This is God's will to colonize, to
1: mm-hmm.
2: to include and and save the barbarians or destroy the barbarians. Right, that that was a sort of foundational notion of uh, Christianity uh, in its early early stages, Christian colonialism, as you called it, uh, Carrie. So there's there's so much uh, that needs to be done, and I think churches need to take responsibility, not only apologizing, but finding ways to offer recompense for some of those things. And you know, if you hold a bunch of land, maybe you should return that right that that's like Catholics are just kind of the easy one to target in that sort of sense, because're probably one of the one of the largest landholding entities in the world, if not the largest one, um and even at the local level, I don't think local churches can be scouted for for dealing with ongoing issues as well, like has some outreach, and it can be outreach to the extent of, hey, we want to proselytize. No, I I still hate that to this day. Like it's it's just coercive in a certain way. Like I was I live close to Skid Row and I'm driving and there's a, a preacher there doing like giving out food, which I'm not opposed to of course, but the whole point of giving out the food is to proselytize instead of yep. just giving out the food that people need. You don't need to proselytize and okay. give out food to people. So there's some just small, basic mm-hmm. things, both very macro and even at local levels that can be done without expectations.
3: Mm. Mm. I fear, though, I do a lot of consulting with churches, specifically white churches with big, huge savior complexes. That and the the whole idea of you know community service projects is has taken on such a consumeristic. Um, mm-hmm. how can I get my warm and fuzzies today? Right. How can I feel good about myself today? Let me go, you know, um, put a sandwich in a bag and bring it down to, you know, a place I normally don't go. And I, now I can feel good about myself. There's a lot of that in, specifically in the white church. And, um, I, I fear so a performative, uh, again, pat on our own backs around, you know, we'll do a land acknowledgement in the beginning of our liturgy. Great. We did a land acknowledgement at the beginning of our, beginning of our liturgy. That's an important step because a lot of people would never have even known that. Right. But what does that actually do to move, to, to bend the moral arc of the universe further toward justice? Right. Like it, that in and of itself doesn't, doesn't do a lot. And, um, I always, I'm always, i always so cautious about, especially when I'm working with a church, to, to caution them about how exactly they do feed bellies, because feeding bellies can run the risk of making us feel really, really good about ourselves, but it doesn't do anything to change the problem. And in fact, in the back end, we're doing a whole bunch of things that are going to prop up the very system that creates those hungry bellies that make us feel good when we feed them, right? So I'm always trying to push us toward dismantling those things. I don't necessarily know that I do a good job or how, how to do that, but that's always where my brain is going. You know, how can we, how can we really do that, do that well? And I think doing it without, you know, evangelism is a really good start. It's a good start, but it's nowhere near the finish. It's there's so much more that we have to do. And again, I have a f- complete failure of imagination there, but I'm willing to ask the questions. I'm willing to push people to think about it because um, I don't think we think about that enough, especially as an, as a church, as people <laughs> it, who say we love God. It,
2: it reminds me of the social media shaming of um, uh, what's the mega church millionaire bestseller author person Joel Olstein.
3: Which one, Joel yep. Joel Olstein? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, during I think in. Is I believe church is based in Houston, maybe, or at somewhere yes. in that cca
3: mm-hmm.
2: And mm-hmm. the the flooding or whatever had happened, and you know, not even willing to open mm-hmm. the doors initially. Right. There's just yeah. but there's so also a concern of their nonprofit status as well. And I'm like, if you have all that money, the least you could do is build up housing with no
1: expectations. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm and people. maybe to um, me what validates their work at least in their own minds and in society's minds is how many people of color participate in that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know they have some of the biggest names in in uh black and brown uh music artistry who are you know part of their staff and you know they're you you you, you know they would probably call themselves a, a multicultural or Diverse uh, church. Yep. DEI yep. before DEI. the.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I'm. I'm also reminded of a small nonprofit. I'm. I'm 15 minutes outside of Newark, New Jersey, and so that when I was involved in a large, skinny jean pastor, shiny tooth church back in the day, um, I was in charge of community service, and I was. I was, would go out and partner with these organizations. And I remember visiting one particular organization and I was just thinking about this the other day. And as I'm thinking about land ownership now and in this conversation and the way we hoard it, the way we hoard it and use it to, and Lord it over um, the most vulnerable people, because they had a program that um, they would, they, they had a soup kitchen in this facility and it was a shelter and they would, um, they would feed people, but they would only give them one meal, but if they were willing to, um, to participate in a, in a six-month program or something, they could actually get housing in three squares a day, but they had to show up for this class, which was of course indoctrination, it was of course evangelism and all that. Um, but also, as they took me on the tour, they were so proud to show me this really big area that was completely under, unused, right? It, would, they, they, it was open, wide open space, that they did not use. They already had a part that was for women. There was a part for men. And they said, we want, we really want to open up this part for families, but we're really concerned that we're going to get some LGBTQ in there. And so we don't want to, we, you know, we don't want to do that. Did they we even use we, the term would,
1: LGBT? Did they even use the term they- LGBTQ? They didn't say probably homosexuals? Oh, that's a they good question. Pri- I'm pretty
3: sure they probably said homosexuals, right? And so <laughs> they were like, what happens if we get, you know, a homosexual couple in here? What would we do? Because we want to the treat them with dignity. The travesty. Treat, they said they, they, they wanted to treat them with dignity, and they didn't think that they could do that when they turned them away. Just let them, let them give them a place to sleep. <laughs> like, you know? And um, so, I, so the, the, the fact that they were hoarding, Property, space, shelter, food, for such uh, it was one of the last times I could be part of that after that conversation. That was one of the last times It was very close to my end there so i, I it's it's again, it's just such a um, I think that the reason I bring it up is because i I just want to make people aware of the very real ways in which land ownership. Small and large systemically does harm to people, you know, does real harm to the most vulnerable.
1: Any thoughts on that, Kyle? Like a-
3: <laughs>
2: I, I'm just at a loss of words with, uh, with, with that example. It's, it's infuriating <laughs> with, you know, parents kicking out trans kids and their kids. <laughs> Imagine the, them having housing and food. And still being able to complete education, whatever that they, you know, really wanted to do or plan to do. And the kind of cool thing that they could do in life. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's, it's it's a child. <laughs> they just need some support. Uh, but right. concerned about their gender, sexual sexuality, or... It, I don't even have a real response. It's, it's always infuriating, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Me, you know, we're we're coming up uh, um, uh, with actually the hour, and we asked you for for an hour. Um, I want I want be, before I stop. I'm going to ask you uh, to say something about hip hop beats, indigenous rhymes. Uh, but before that, I, the reason I asked you where you were when you were growing up, you know, Lansing, Michigan, and you know your interest in in Malcolm X and and, and all of that is uh, I'm a lifelong Californian. And, you know, when I grew up, when I came of age, there was no internet or anything, and the media was very restrictive, you know, mass media. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hardly knew anything about Malcolm X, hardly knew anything about uh, the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. King. I hardly knew anything about these things. But one one person they could not keep away from me, so he became, I think, who Malcolm X is to you, Is Muhammad Ali because in support they had to follow him. And so he was my inspiration. He he is, I I think he might fulfill the role that Malcolm plays for you uh, because he empowered me. And and then Mm -hmm. after I graduated high school, everybody, I went to University of California, and everybody who was black that I knew had a poster of Angela Davis. You know, they didn't have King, they didn't have Malcolm. They didn't have, you know, a few had Black Moses, you know, Isaac Hayes, uh, <laughs> but, but the one that everybody had was Angela Davis. And so she became our, our empowerment, you know, a source of dignity for us. And so mm. I can kind of relate to what, you know, because I did discover Malcolm in time. Um, and, uh, you know, we need, we need our people to empower us, you know, we We need the people who dare the people, you know, who take risks like the the two men in their twenties in Tennessee who were just ejected uh, from, uh, the, the, the legislature, uh, man, they fire me up like a Malcolm or a Muhammad Ali. You have any thoughts on those brothers?
2: Yeah. I I thought it was really slick about how they're calling out, uh, (laughs) the people for why they have not been kicked out. uh, Mm of. um, you know kicked out a legislator or peeing on someone's seat pedophilia all sorts of things which is just wild to me uh but people protesting uh gun rights right and amazing amazing and certainly we need more um more black people to look up to i just i'm working on something right now around the the lack of imagination of black celebrities as well because it's sort of they should use their platform more. And my question is why? Some of them should not be using any platform <laughs> to advocate anything <laughs> for black people. This is not Muhammad Ali's era. Right? And and there ain't too there ain't too many Muhammad Ali's out there, uh even today as far as mm-hmm. the scope and the analysis of what they're trying to accomplish. But quickly I think uh hip hop beats I actually want to write a remix version of that. Uh, But it is really is to say that indigenous peoples engage in modern culture, identity production, specifically through hip hop. And there's some really good hip hop artists, indigenous hip hop artists out there that I wish got a little bit more exposure, but that's also the nature of colonialism to say that I didn't know that native people did hip hop. Right, I'm like everybody does hip hop. I don't care where you are in the world, <laughs> everybody does some version of their own hip hop, um, and so, you know, has the same issues, critiques uh, around hyper-masculinity, patriarchy, but also really good critiques of colonialism and so forth. And it's done by a lot of urban indigenous artists, especially since eighty percent live in cities. Of indigenous people live in cities, uh, so. Mm. I love indigenous hip hop and I, I wish they got more uh, play on different uh, sort of mainstream uh, for mainstream audiences.
3: Who's, who's your favorite uh, uh, artist or artists who are your favorite artists right now? Shout well, out to
2: me. I, I got to give a shout out to the Detroit folks. So shout out to Sacramento Knox, has been doing a lot of cool activism as well. And, uh Southwest Detroit, Southie, um has done a lot of fantastic projects and they can rap that's the other thing it's that's important to me like you can actually bring it you gotta bring it right yeah yeah. (laughs) just because you're native and you have a microphone and i'm not a rapper at all but i have the critiques and understanding like what sounds good and not everyone (laughs) sounds good it's not hating would you say that
1: would you say that uh the the uh program uh reservation dogs is you got a uh, kind of like a hip-hop culture, a flavor to it?
2: Yeah, no doubt. I did an uh, interview with uh, Mato, who's um, kind of the musical production person for the show. And I think he's curated. There's a lot of backlash. I should get a lot of messages when the show first came out around anti-blackness. And I'm like, I don't think y'all understand how black culture circulates. And it's okay if non-black people engage with the music um as long as they're respecting the people and the culture i'm okay with it so yeah there's definitely Mm -hmm. some hip-hop um bicultural part components to the to the show that that i think are useful
1: wow well carrie you want to say anything before we um sign off today no
3: i just i love this conversation i i I learned a lot and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to to sit at your feet and to to learn today. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here.
1: And if you, you know, if you ever do come up to Santa Barbara, uh, let me know. We'll sit in the backyard, put on some uh, Gil Scott hair on or something uh, and, and, uh, you know, have some wine and just, uh, you know, just uh, catch up with one another. You're welcome here. All right. Appreciate that. Well, everybody, we've been talking with Kyle T. Mays, uh, professor of African-American studies, American Indian studies and history at UCLA. And uh, this has been a great gift to us. And we we are stirred. We are motivated to do more research. Um, I feel like this is a, this is an area that we can stand to catch up on. I think it's a vital piece to us, uh, building our imaginations, uh, creating a vision for a better world. So I know that, Oh, you know, I was going to ask you, Dr. Mays, I was going to ask you when you saw Justin Pearson, uh, yesterday in, uh, in Nashville, well, wherever they were in Tennessee, um, what's the capital of Tennessee again, help me out. I'm, I'm spacing. Is Uh, it Knoxville? Knoxville. I, I, I'm assuming it was in Knoxville. Um, when, when you saw him and you saw his hair, did you think Afro-Indigenous? <laughs> I, had,
2: I had a lot of thoughts. I don't know if I'll say them on, uh, on the program, but I was...
1: <laughs> All right. I, get <laughs> I thought it was I cool
2: I, to back, though, so I appreciated
1: it. I mean, I I, did I, like have, it though. I have relatives in North Carolina. In fact, when the family has a reunion, they, there are some who, you know, they, they have Indigenous ceremonies. Huh. Uh and they, and they present, they, you know, they look like they could not be necessarily African-American. And so that's what I thought of. Cause he looked like one, of, he looked like Ken to me, but I don't know. I don't could know. Be. I'd, I'd never not it. You, you never know.
2: <laughs>
1: well, have a beautiful awesome. rest of your week and, and, uh, carry you too. And, uh, you we're so signing it. off.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at GodIsNotAnAsshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world
1: needs to know that God is not an asshole.